The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew, chapter 27, verses 32 to 54. Matthew 27, verses 32 to 54. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sebachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you all. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Whether you're here in the building worshiping with us or worshiping online, I want to say thank you all uh, for engaging with us. Um, we're going to be getting into that passage. We're in the middle of a, a second of a three-week series on the gospel of the kingdom. 
or what we're looking at today in particular is this concept of the cross and the kingdom. What does the cross of Jesus have to do with the kingdom of God? Uh, it's central for who we are as a people and, um, and I think uh, really shaping for the way we think about our involvement as a community, but also for the way we think about our engagement in the world. And so we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, before we do, I want to take a moment. This week, uh, we're joining with other churches around our nation who throughout the month of January have been taking time to honor and celebrate the sanctity of human life, that every human being is created in God's image and as such is worthy of dignity and value. And that's apart from what people believe or how they engage or ethnicity or color of skin, but also is something that is true for unborn human beings, children in the womb. And so the same thing that would move us to advocate for and promote uh, racial justice or care for the marginalized or care for the oppressed, things that we as a church family care about, also moves us and propels us to advocate and care for the dignity and value and worth of unborn children. And so as a community, just thinking, what does that mean for us? I really have three things that I think uh, God wants in us that I think ought to be things that we are praying about and engaged in. And the first is that we ought to be a community, and we pray that we would be a community that advocates for the dignity, value, and worth of unborn children. Uh, we live in a society where many have been led to believe that an unborn child is less than a human being, that they're not full-on image bearers of God, and because of that, many have been led to believe that it is acceptable or okay in any way to terminate or abort the life of an unborn child. And though we know that there are a lot of complications around people's experience that lead up to that, and I'll talk about that in a moment, that's not true in God's design for humanity. He's actually designed his image to be seen and honored and loved and respected in unborn children. And as a church family, we want to work to advocate for and protect those very vulnerable, uh, really the most vulnerable human beings out there in the way we both kind of promote life, but also help change the narrative around what God has designed human beings to be uh, and, the, and the inherent dignity that an unborn baby has. But also, second, we want to be a church that's learning about and engaged in the broader personal and systemic issues that have led so many people in the face of crisis pregnancies or unplanned pregnancies to feel so overwhelmed with the idea of bringing a new baby into this world. There are massive issues in our culture and in our society that have led many families, in particular in underserved and under-resourced communities, to feel incredibly overwhelmed with the idea that it would feel to many nearly impossible to think about how they could bring a child in this world and support and raise that child. And we want to care about and learn about those broader issues. So we want to be a church family that's engaged in finding ways to help and support single mothers and young families. We want to be a church that's engaged in helping promote healthy families. We want to be a church that's engaged in thinking about providing healthy health care options and better health care options for underserved families and for people in underserved communities. We want to be a church family that's thinking about how we can help promote adoption and support people in the foster care system. A church family that's thinking about how we can help wherever you have agency, caring about employment benefits for mothers and for families, all these things that also contribute to the broader issues. So we want to care about the rights and the dignity and value of unborn children, but we also want to back up and say what's happening culturally that's leading to so many people being so overwhelmed with the idea of bringing a child in this world, and we want to care about all of those things. But also we want to be a church that shows compassion. 
It grieves me that the church has had, in my opinion, in an effort to fight for the dignity and value of the unborn has become a very compassionless place for people that have faced really painful decisions around abortion. In a church our size, I know that there are many of you, men and women, who have been in really hard situations and have made decisions in your past where you feel regret or shame. And we want this to be a place where there's compassion, there's love, there's grace, and there's healing. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is some, someone that you can come to to experience grace and healing and hope. And so for all those who have faced those things, or if you have loved ones or family members who have faced painful decisions in their past where you feel complicated emotions, we want this to be a community of grace and compassion and healing where we can enter in with you, hear your story, and lead you to the healing love of Christ. That nobody is beyond the reach of his compassion and his healing and his grace. And we want to be a community that radiates that in the way we engage even in these issues, especially in these issues. And so we're praying that that would be true of us increasingly as a community. And if there's something that you are going through or somebody that you know or love is going through, we as a pastoral team and a staff team are present and want to help create resources to meet you in the middle of the things that you're walking through, emotional struggles, financial struggles, spiritual struggles around these things, whether decisions that you're facing right now or decisions you've made in the past. Also, we partner with an organization, a really wonderful organization called Alternatives Pregnancy Center, and they exist to meet people in the middle of the kind of mental, emotional, physical, spiritual needs as people are facing any sort of pregnancy-related crisis, and they work to provide resources to help families make and find alternatives to abortion, but also meet people with counseling services who have walked through, again, kind of the regrets and pains and the emotional difficulty of facing regrets from decisions made in the past. And so if you're interested in finding out how to be involved in that or if those services would kind of meet you in something you're walking through, you can go to youhavealternatives.org and, or you can reach out to our pastoral team and we'd love to walk with you. We, want to meet, we don't want you to have to carry those things alone, whether it's the struggle of a decision you're facing right now or pain from decisions made in the past. We want to be a community of grace. It's who Jesus is. It's who he's called us to be. And so we want to be engaged with thoughtfulness uh, around this issue as we continue to advocate for the dignity of every human being created in God's image. And so we're going to take a moment and pray for these things and open up our hearts as we consider the self-giving love of Jesus in this passage, that his love would be something that just marks us as a people, that marks us as we receive his love, bask in his love, marvel at his love, but also the, the kind of people that reflect and demonstrate that love in the world. So would you join me as we pray? Um, Jesus, we, we come right now and we pray you'd pour out grace on our church family. In particular, right now, I pray for men and women who, uh, who feel maybe uh, any just, yeah, really painful and complicated emotions based on decisions they've made in the past, that you would, even as we talk about a very tender, a very tender issue, that your love and your grace would come down on them and provide healing. And I pray that we'd be a community that powerfully advocates for these beautiful image bearers in the womb. That we would be a piece of the narrative changing in this country. That these lives wouldn't feel less than human in any way. That they wouldn't feel disposable. But that they would be protected and loved and delighted in and celebrated and advocated for and supported. And we pray for the families, God. The families that are facing really hard situations for the families that feel so overwhelmed by the thought of bringing a child in this world because of all sorts of difficult and complicated issues, God, that we be a church that's engaged, 
sacrificially advocating, helping, supporting, caring for people with compassion and sacrificial love. And so would you help us to face a complex issue with complex love and wisdom and thoughtfulness and passion and integrity and fruitfulness? We're praying for a work of your spirit in this country around these things. And we pray that there would be healing and transformation that happens in beautiful and stunning ways. And now as we even turn to your word, I pray that the self-giving love of Jesus would be something that fills us up and would transform the way we think about all things, the way we think about all people, the way we think about our lives here and now, what it means to be the people of your kingdom, a people of grace and a people of love. And so would you pour out grace on us through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 26. We'll get there in a moment, uh, but I kind of want to back up a little bit and uh, and talk about the disappointment of the cross. Uh, Disappointment is something that all of us have experienced in one way or another. Uh, Disappointment is when your reality does not meet your expectations. So disappointment is a sad emotion you have when when the reality that you're experiencing isn't matching with the expectations that you had for any certain scenario. And so in 2020 in particular, uh, lots and lots of room for disappointment. So many people had, you know, weddings canceled and graduations that felt different and college plans changed and loved ones that you couldn't visit and difficulties with your job and all of of those realities. Um, I, I remember for me the first kind of like, Disappointment that felt like a really big deal at the beginning and then turned out to be like the most inconsequential thing was the, was the cancellation of March Madness. It's like never happened. I'm a Jayhawks fan. We were number one. It was going to be awesome. What a great year. Like no March Madness. I couldn't even, and it felt like a really big deal in the moment. Then it's like, you know, pales in comparison to the disappointments that people have experienced later. But disappointments happen in all sorts of spheres, Right. Uh, They happen in life all the time. I I think about people that go into marriage with this expectation that your spouse is going to be perfect. Now, I'm a a big advocate for marriage. I think marriage is beautiful. I think in our culture, there's all this like negative kind of like rhetoric rhetoric around marriage. Like it's really hard and it's really whatever. And it's like, man, marriage is the best. Marriage is amazing. Uh, And it is challenging. It is challenging because we bring brokenness into it. But when you go in expecting it to be perfect bliss 100% of the time, it will be grossly disappointing. If you go into it with better expectations, like there's beauty here and there will be brokenness here, like everything, then the brokenness is, are things you can face without as much disappointment. Same thing is true with education, maybe college. If you've been determined to get all A's your whole life, like a B feels like, no, you know. But if you go in with a sort of C's get degrees kind of mentality, you know, B's like, that's pretty great, you know? And a C doesn't bother you that much, right? I'm not, I'm not like advocating for that, that perspective, uh, but expectations. It's expectations. What do you expect? What do you expect in your job? What do you expect of the church? What do you expect, right? When you come in with these high expectations, it's easy to kind of fall short. And the kind of chasm between your expectation and reality affects the depth of disappointment you feel. And perhaps nobody throughout the history of the world, has felt that chasm like the early followers of Jesus. As they thought about what the kingdom of God is and what they expected the king and who they expected the king to be and what they thought the king would do, that nothing would shatter and fall short of their expectations as much as their king crucified on a Roman cross. Nothing. Because the expectations that they had of what the king would be and what the king would do were high. 
In fact, when you kind of walk through the gospel narratives and you see Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, kind of five days before, on the Sunday before his crucifixion, that would happen on a Friday on that triumphal entry, Palm Sunday we call it in kind of church calendar language. On that Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and it's very clear he's embracing his identity as king. And because of that, all of the sort of Jewish community is overwhelmed with this kind of uprising of expectation. What the king's going to be like. What this means is the king's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to take the throne and the temple. He's going to drive out all the corruption. He's going to get rid of Roman oppression. He's going to establish the kingdom of God right here, right now, and reestablish the glory of Israel. And Israel's going to be high and lifted up. It's going to be this nation that kind of radiates over and above all the other nations that have squashed it and oppressed it for generation upon generation. That's their expectation of what the king would be. That's why people like James and John, as they're following Jesus, like, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, like, can we be, like, in the frame when they get the kind of good, nice shot of you on the screen? We want to be on your right hand and your left hand in your glory when you're on the throne dominating. We want that. We want to go up with you. This guy's rising. Let's rise with him. Let's just grab on his coattails and go up the ladder with Jesus is what it felt like for people. It's what they expected. He's going to come and redeem them from the oppressiveness of Rome. And so when that king, rather than taking a throne in the temple or creating some warrior army, when that king is convicted wrongfully, when he's betrayed, when he's stripped, whipped, beaten, marched up a hill, naked and bloody and hanging on a tree, suffocating slowly until he finally dies. Nothing could be more disappointing. Nothing. All of their dreams, all of their hopes, the one who they put all their hope for the future of the world, the world they longed for, had just experienced the most shameful death imaginable, a death that was seen as cursed and so you have a couple followers of Jesus a few days later that are walking on this road. This is in Luke. Uh, walking on this road, contemplating these things on this road to Emmaus. And as they're walking and they're contemplating, they're just feeling incredible sense of disappointment. And on this road, Jesus appeared to them in a really powerful scene. I'm going to read this and we'll get back into Matthew. They're talking together, bewildered, confused, disappointed and Jesus shows up and somehow he masks his identity. They don't understand who he is. And so he says to them, he says, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood and they looked and said, uh, they looked sad. They were looking sad, disappointed. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, listen to this, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was the Christ. That's just the anointed king. We thought he was going to be the king, and we thought he was going to fix everything that was wrong. And clearly, he didn't. He was condemned and crucified. And then they share about how these, this word about 
him supposedly being alive has been circling around, but the people can't find the body. And then Jesus says this in verse 25 of, this is Luke 24. He says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary that the Christ, the King, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What Jesus is saying is, wasn't this the plan all along? Have you, has your mind kind of like been twisted to thinking like this wasn't a part of the plan? Are you slow to believe all the prophets and all the scriptures have pointed to that the crucifixion of the king is the plan to bring redemption and restoration and glory? The cross is a part of the plan. The cross is a part of the plan. The cross is central to the kingdom. The cross is the centerpiece of the kingdom. And so what we're asking today is what does the cross have to do with the kingdom? And here it is in the most simple form. The cross is the way into the kingdom and it is the way of the kingdom. It's the way into the kingdom and the way of the kingdom. We'll see both of these things in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to kind of work backwards through Matthew 24. So I'm going to pick up in Matthew chapter 24, verse 25, looking at how the cross is the way into the kingdom of God. Verse 45 says this. Now from the sixth hour, this is Jesus hanging on the cross. The sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, 3 p.m.-ish, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That there's something happening on the cross, more than the kind of execution of some, you know, enemy of the state, more than the Jewish people feeling like he's a threat. Something is happening on the cross between the Son and the Father between Jesus and the God of the universe, something that has massive implications for the world. And Jesus is expressing what's happening as he quotes Psalm 22 saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, there is a separation between the Son and the Father. There is a chasm as the Father pours out his wrath against humans' rebellion on the Son, and Jesus is laying down his life, taking upon himself the debt that we had accrued because of our rebellion against the God of the universe. And if you're not kind of familiar with the Christian story, these things feel like, wait, what's happening? This feels weird and theoretical. It is so real and so practical and so kind of lived in our experience that we live in this world as created humans, created beings, and we live in a dominion, in a realm, in a world that was created by a creator, the holy God of the universe. And as human beings, as we turn away from him and try to kind of absorb and squeeze out of this world every bit of joy for ourselves while rejecting the reign of the creator, there is a treason against the creator king. And the Bible calls that treason, that rebellion, it calls it sin. And the holy God of the universe, in his response to that sin, we experience separation from God. So as you think about the brokenness in your life, the brokenness in your family, the brokenness in the world, it is a consequence of humans' rebellion against God. That we're trying to live this life separated from the life giver. 
We're trying to find love separated from the lover of our souls. We're trying to find hope separated from the one who can actually secure a future of glory and life and radiance and light. And we're wandering around in a dominion of darkness separated from the life of God. And Jesus entered into that dark domain and he took upon himself humanity's rebellion against God. The Bible word is sin. And he took upon himself the sin of the world and laid down his life to experience the consequences of humanity's rebellion in order that you and I could be forgiven and God's justice could be upheld. And this is what's happening in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read. This is what Chris read a couple of weeks ago. The Apostle Paul says this. He's, he's imploring people that are wandering in the darkness, fishing around in life, stumbling around in destructive patterns, trying to find some way to experience life and joy and love. He's saying you will never do it while you wander in the darkness. So he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Come back to the Father. Well, how can sinful people that have been rebelling be reconciled to the Father? Here's what Paul says. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Now, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he became sin for us. As it is written, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. That he becomes this full embodied expression of our anger and our lust and our malice and our bitterness and our injustice and our anger and, our, and all of the things that have led to corruption and division, our murderous thoughts and our greed and our covetousness and our contempt and our angst, Jesus just became it, like absorbed all of humanity's rebellion against God in his body. It says he became sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the, the Bible word here, or the theological word here, is double imputation, uh, what Martin Luther called the great exchange. And it's this idea in the spiritual reality that God had designed Jesus coming into this world, taking on humanity's sin, that our sin is imputed to him. It's like accounted to him as if he had done it all, as if all of your sinfulness and my sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world as if all of it had just been done by him, committed by him, embodied by him. Our sin is imputed to him. And he experiences the wrath of God that we deserve. And he's separated from the Father in this moment of absolute devastation. The holy, righteous, beautiful Son of God who is a lover, a servant, humble, kind, full of grace, full of truth, full of wisdom, full of servant-heartedness towards the world, healing and restoring people, being who human beings were designed to be, the perfect kind of human being par excellence is standing there, hanging there as an embodiment of sin and experiencing separation from God the Father Almighty in order that you and I could have our sins paid for, our debt has been paid, and we could be counted righteous, that we could receive his righteousness. And the, and the kind of Bible term there is justification, that we could be justified, that sinful people, guilty people, people that are committed 
rebellious acts against the king could be counted innocent, guilty, forgiven, loved, clean, washed, accepted, reconciled. And the reason why that is such powerful news to move away from the theological terminology into your life is when you think about what you did last night, as you think about the anger you hold towards somebody that you've been close to, as you think about the bitterness, as you think about the covetousness, as you think about the greed or the lust or the malice or these things that just like constantly are just like around you and in you, you can actually be really honest. I've sinned against the God of the universe. But Jesus Christ paid for that sin. And in him, I am clean, I am loved, I am washed, I'm accepted. It means you can be honest about the brokenness of your life because the brokenness and the sin and the struggles and the doubts and the failures do nothing, nothing to violate God's love for you because God's love for you is entirely on the basis of what Christ accomplished on the cross. That you as a human being can own the brokenness and say, yes, yes, yes. Guilty, broken, messed up, stumbling, weak, loved, forgiven, accepted, delighted in. That the God of the universe isn't disappointed in you. He's not losing his patience with you. He delights in you because of what Christ's accomplished on the cross. That through the death of Christ, you are delivered, says in Colossians chapter 1, from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That this is what God's doing to restore the world. He's forgiving rebels and making them children. And he did it through the work of Christ on the cross. And that has massive implications for the way you view yourself and the way you view others. That when you think about the way you view yourself, you can be very honest about the brokenness. You don't have to cover things up. You don't have to minimize the issues. You can be like, here I am with all of my mess. A sinful person. But not like, here I am with all my mess, a sinful person. Here I am with all of my mess, a sinful person loved by God. Loved by God, a beloved son, a beloved daughter of God, to actually feel the freedom of being exactly who you are with all of your brokenness and experience and receive the stunning, merciful, gracious love of God. It is liberating. It's liberating to experience the grace of God in such a powerful way. But when you experience that grace, it changes also the way you need to think about other people. That we as a Christian community ought to be a community of grace, a community that's showing spectacular grace towards one another, patient with one another, kind to one another, forgiving to one another, loving and humble towards one another. When, when there's an offense towards you that we're quick to show the grace that God's shown to us, when there's a confrontation of you, you're quick to be receptive. I'm sure there is something there because I know that I'm broken. I don't have to prove that I'm not to justify myself. I've been justified apart from my works by Christ. So I can own those things, receive those things, learn from those things, not as condemning things, but as things that help me learn more about God's grace towards me. What a powerful thing to be a community of grace, especially in a world like today, where there's so much angst, so much animosity, so much contempt, so much division. What would it look like to say, man, God, make us a community of grace, patience, love, kindness. It'd be beautiful. It can be beautiful. It's one of the ways God wants to show his love through us is by the kind of grace that we receive and then extend to other people. 
a community of grace. It is the way into the kingdom. The cross is the way into the kingdom, but it's also the way of the kingdom. And I think this is a really powerful thing that you can kind of glance over when you're reading through the gospel accounts, but it's so evident uh, right here in Matthew. The amount of verbiage that the community around Jesus, the Romans and the Jews, are using king language to talk about Jesus, and they're doing it to mock him. So you can read it right there in the passage. It says it in Matthew chapter 27. It says that they called him king of the Jews. They put this charge over him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Over and over, this kind of phrase, king of the Jews, you called yourself king of Israel, come down from the cross. Over and over and over, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. What they're doing is they're, they're mocking him. And so even before they nailed him on a tree, they took a Roman's kind of red cape that the Roman centurions would wear, and they took it, and they take it off a Roman, they put it on Jesus to make fun of him as this, like, royal robe. They find some, like, group of thorns, they twist him into a crown, they push the crown, they give him some reed, and they give him a reed as, like, a scepter, and they're like, look at you, king. Like, you thought you were great, you thought you were king, look at you now. Good job, king. Mocking him creating this like parody around who he was, saying, look, you thought you were exalted. You thought you were this high and lifted up one. Look at you now, a bloody mess about to die. And so they put this charge over him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. And they hoist him up on this Roman cross. Now, the Roman cross was a very common method of execution in their day, but it was reserved for a very specific group of people. The Romans had kind of appropriated this execution method from other barbaric kind of societies from the past and brought it in because they saw it as a public shaming that was designated and kind of reserved for people that exalted themselves above their station. For somebody like a slave who had tried to revolt against their master or some group of rebels that had sought to mount some insurrection against the Roman Empire, anybody that thought to kind of like rise up over their station, they saw it as a parody saying, you want to lift yourself up? Let's lift you up. Let's lift you up. Let's put you high and lift it up. High and mighty you are. And they saw it as a mock exaltation. Look at you high and lifted up. Here's what happens to people that exalt themselves over the empire. Here's what happens to people that exalt themselves over their station. And what's stunning about this passage and all the gospel writers putting so much emphasis on this king mockery is it actually was in his death that he was exalted. It actually was the the cross that became the throne. It actually was in the crucifixion that Jesus took his seat as the high and exalted one. Because the way of the kingdom is upside down from the way of the world. That Jesus is the true human being. So as you think about what does it mean to follow Jesus when we're looking at Jesus' love and serve and show kindness and grace and speak truth and heal and restore and confront and advocate, as you're watching him, you're like, this is humanity in its best. Like, this is the best human. And then all of a sudden, he's crucified. And I would say, this is humanity at its best. Self-giving love is humanity at its best. This is who we're designed to be. When Jesus is getting nailed to the cross, his life isn't being taken from him. He is actively laying it down to give of himself for others. 
And so the cross isn't just the way into the kingdom of God, as if now we're forgiven and we're reconciled to God, so we get to go to heaven when we die. We talked about that last week. It's the way of the kingdom. It's the hallmark of who we're designed to be. It's humanity at its best is this cross-formed people, self-giving love where we give of ourselves for others again and again and again and again and again, sacrificially loving other people. In your marriage, instead of saying, what's in it for me and they never do that for me and what's going to happen to me, it's self-giving love again and again and again among your roommates in your workplace with your coworkers, or even as you think about your industry, not how do I grow and climb and make more and more money? How do I use the gifts and the wisdom and the resources to do good for other people? This is humanity. It's who we are made to be. And when we all act like that in a household or in a church family or in a small group or in a society or at a workplace, it's powerful because everybody's experiencing love. Everybody's being cared for. Everybody's being supported. Everybody's being helped, but not because you're climbing up by yourself, not because you're clawing and demanding and competing, because it's a community of people that are giving of themselves to one another. And that's what humanity was designed to be from the very beginning. And it's why Jesus says, it's necessary, because I needed to show you what human beings were designed to do. Give of yourselves for others. This is God in his glory. This is the Son of God in its most beautiful, glorious state. In in Philippians, Paul says it like this. He says, I want you to have in yourselves this mind, which is yours in Christ. Like in Christ, this is yours. The Spirit's yours. This is what he's trying to create in you. And this is what he says of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he is co-equal in glory with God the Father Almighty, did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, his status and his power, he didn't think status and power is supposed to be used to lift myself up, protect myself, climb my ladder, take the throne, kind of reject all those who are opposed to me. He didn't consider power and glory and status something to be used to lift himself up. He saw it as something to be used for the good of others. So he took on human form, And he became a servant, and he served us to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went down, down, down. He says, this kind of glory, this kind of strength, this kind of power is to be used self-sacrificially for the good of others. And the high and lifted up one made himself nothing and died on a cross. And what the Father says over him, therefore, because of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's my king crucified. That we would boast in the cross, that we would glory in the cross, that we would celebrate the cross, that we would proclaim the cross, that this would be a part of who we are. That's glory. It's not the way the world thinks about glory, but it's the way people of the kingdom are supposed to think about glory. Through the lens of the cross, God says, that one who is powerful and high and lifted up made himself nothing. And that makes him the most exalted in the world. Or in the words of Jesus, the last will be first. The humble will be exalted. The greatest are the ones who approach others as a servant or a slave of all. This is humanity. It's who we're designed to be. It's the way of the kingdom. And so we as a people need to get a new imagination for what it means to live in this world where it says, if you want to go forward in life, climb, climb, climb. Say, that is not the way of God's kingdom. That's the kingdom and dominion of darkness. The way of God's kingdom is serve, love, sacrifice, forgive, show grace, 
Seek the interests of others. Pay attention to the needs of others and lay down your life for their good. And when we do that, we show God's glory and the glory of his kingdom in a way that is transformative. And we're praying that God would do that among us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come right now and we need your grace. Uh, We need your help both to receive the power of your love towards us, your kindness, your patience, your self-sacrificing love, that we would marvel in it. We would rest in it. That we'd find freedom in it. That we cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. That we know the way of Jesus and follow him and that you'd show your love through us in spectacular ways. So would you even right now fill us up with your spirit to give us fresh eyes to see your love, but also creative vision for our life. How can we in our homes, in our families, and in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods, and in this city, how can we show self-sacrificial love? Would you give us the power and the strength and the faith to follow the way of Jesus? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.